Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse, and I'm Eric, and today we're reading short and deep. I Mars by Ray Bradbury. This is first published in Super Science Stories, the Big Book of Science Fiction, April 1949. Uh, this is a relatively hard to get magazine. Um, but a friend of mine years ago told me that he had tracked down some Ray Bradbury stories that were public domain, and this is one of them. Um, I promptly went and got the issue because he was more into the text itself. And uh, I found this gorgeous, gorgeous uh, Hansbach art inside, which everyone can see on the PDF. And then I started reading the story. I said, this is really familiar. I realized it was one of these cases where Ray Bradbury has subsequently retitled the story. <laughs> so the version I had first read it in is called Night Call Collect. And I think that was in a collection in 1969. This is from 49, so 20 years later. And now here in 2020, we're reading it. Um, but I also would recommend, besides everybody reading the PDF, um, because it is a very fun-to-read story, checking out Mr. Jim Moon's narration of it. This is years ago. I asked him to if he would be interested in recording it, and he did, and he does a wonderful job. This is a very oral story, A-U-R-A-L, you know? It, it's just designed to be heard. And uh, if you've got, like me, uh, an audiobook player in your phone, <laughs> it's really appropriate to hear it through your phone. Maybe even hold it up to your ear, you know? Not even speakerphone, just straight up to your ear and listen to the story because it is designed, and it's really thinking about sound, Oh, I think we noted this in another story we've done, The Wind. And I think you noted something that I, I, I've i since thought a lot about is how interested in sound that Ray Bradbury is. And it, it, this story is, is full of that um, sound device. And and it's it's got this lonely... It's all about sound, really. So that's I, how I, I took it. I'd make a... Uh... A point here about the story. It, it is, uh, I think, a very fascinating story for anyone who thinks of him or herself as a Bradbury um, uh, scholar, student, aficionado, mm -hmm. uh, someone who really cares about Bradbury's work. This is a fascinating story because it it engages so much, it demonstrates so much of what we associate with Bradbury, but subtly it does so in ways that I believe, and I'll try to make clear what I'm thinking uh, as we talk today, that undercut what Bradbury usually does with these same techniques. For example, this is a story very much about sound. And when I think of the greatest strength of Bradbury, well, I don't want to debate about magnitude. One of his great strengths is his sound. He, he has a way of using words that just bring us in. I mean, here there's a, there's a sentence that ends with, and the, the words were hidden, hidden 
hidden. Mm-hmm. And he just just repeats the word hidden a couple of times. It's just it's amazing. And I, I, I knew Bray, Ray uh, slightly. Uh, the first time I met him was after a lecture in which he was on a panel. He had arrived late. This was at UCLA. And he rushed onto the stage. Well, he didn't run. He was already a white haired man. But he, he came onto the stage. The panel had already begun. Um, the moderator said, and, and now we're so glad that Mr. Ray Bradbury has been able to join us. And uh, Ray leaned forward and said, thank you. I, I must apologize. And then he began to narrate how leaving his house and and he had a driver. Uh, he didn't drive himself. He didn't learn to drive until late in life. Um, and being stuck in traffic uh, had, had had kept him from from meeting these people, people who really matter to him, people people who make the world alive for him. And now finally, and everybody at this point is leaning forward, listening to him. You are here before me. <laughs> and like the whole place erupted. And all he did was say, thanks, I'm sorry, I was stuck in traffic. Yeah, I'm late. <laughs> <laughs> he just, he had a way of, of using language that you, to listen to it was, as you're saying, Jesse, it was most, most captivating. But in this story, which I'll describe in a moment, just to make sure everybody knows what's going on, um, mostly he does it in a way that's the exact opposite of what Bradbury usually does. So here's what, it, so the story begins. The phone rang, this is I Mars, 1949. The phone rang. A gray hand lifted the receiver. Hello? Hello, Barton? Yes. This is Barton? What? This is Barton. It can't be. This phone hasn't rung in 20 years. The old man hung up. Bring. His gray hand seized the phone. Hello, Barton, laughed the voice. You've forgotten, haven't you? The old man felt his heart grow small and like a stone and like a cool stone, he felt the wind blowing in off the dry Martian seas and the blue hills of Mars after 20 years of silence and cobwebs. And now tonight on his 80th birthday was a ga- with a ghastly scream. This phone had wailed to life. OK, so you can hear that use of sound, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's mm-hmm. about sound. The sentences are redolent with sound. That bring is written out that mm-hmm. long way with many R's and N's and recurs throughout the story. But, and the, the plot of the story is simple. Um, someone named Barton is being chased, as it were, by phone calls by someone named Barton. And it transpires that Barton has been uh, left alone on Mars after all of the other colonists have returned to Earth after an atomic war. Um, he keeps hoping that eventually a rocket will come to save him, but it doesn't. There's lots of supplies, and he is living in extreme loneliness and begins recording his own voice. He then begins to develop a, a program that is able to respond by picking out the content of what the answerer on the phone says and playing back the right audio transcription. So it sounds like he's having an actual conversation when he's really having only 
interaction with tapes that he's made over the course of years and years. It drives him crazy. But at a certain point, he thinks that maybe there's something real going on, forgetting that he himself in a drunken uh, fit of depression had made this tape and the tape sends him on a goose chase across Mars. Uh, He rushes so much that eventually um, his heart gives out. Um, And that's the end. Uh, I, Mars, he is Mars. That's all that Mars is, is himself. And he is there fighting himself. I want to get back to that fighting himself at some time Mm -hmm. before the end. Right. So the story is about this fellow's loneliness, casting back to thinking about how he's gotten into the situation. And again and again, we have dialogue. I just read the first one. Hello, Barton. Yes, this is Barton. What? And it goes on. He, after the phone, wailed for life. Who do you think it was, said the voice, a rocket captain? Well, later, in fact, a rocket captain comes in. So this is good writing. Mm -hmm. Do you think someone had come to rescue you? No. What's the date? Numbly, July 20th, 2097. Good Lord, 60 years. Have you been sitting there that long waiting for a rocket to come from Earth to rescue you? The old man nodded. Now, old man, do you know who I am? Think. Yes. The dry, pale lips trembling. I understand. I remember. We are one. I am Emil Barton, and you are Emil Barton. With one difference, you are 80. I am only 20. All of life before me. Now, there are many things to say about this passage, but... One that I would like to just highlight here, Jesse, is how strongly this has sound in it, mm-hmm. as you say, as Bradbury always does. And yet, can you think of other Bradbury passages with this much dialogue? Yeah, no, he's not known for that, right? I think it's, in fact, the exact opposite. That's why one of the reasons I told that little story about the first time I was actually in Ray Bradbury's presence He doesn't have conversations. He has monologues Mm -hmm. and they are so captivating that people love them. I mean, he was just extraordinary. But here he has dialogue. And I find it fascinating that the dialogue, which runs throughout this story, the best it's the most dialogic of any Bradbury story. And it is a dialogue that's maintainable only because it's the same person talking to the same person. So in a way, Bradbury is undercutting the idea of actual communication in the story that so stresses the idea of sound. When I put this against his most famous work, like the Martian Chronicles, um, this seems somehow and to, to fit ill with that other work. He's trying here to turn his talents to something that is unusual for him. Yeah, oh, definitely. Um, and yet, I see uh, this. I, I was thinking about why this story has so much power. Um, and I was thinking, oh, I, it, you know, Ray Bradbury's never been my favorite science fiction writer. And part of the reason is, is he's not really interested in, in the science part of the science fiction, right? He's He uses it sort of the trappings and the visits to Mars and and uh, all the you know the tech the, what little tech he has in his stories is it's 
it's usually for the effect of of causing an emotion within the reader to express his own emotion. It's very poetic. Um, however, I was thinking that this is actually a very science fictional story in the sense that um, he, we actually could have this situation. It's unlikely, but we could have this situation. I, I think about the, I don't use the phone to interact with telephone banks, you know, where you press dial press one or anything like that very much but every once in a while i have to do that and it's always a strange feeling saying you know uh please uh say your name right <laughs> after the beep or whatever or it just even listens um and then it, it somehow goes through its mechanical brain in a certain sense and hears the words that you're saying through speech recognition and then transfers you to the appropriate device within the system it's kind of hard to explain ray bradbury does a better job than i do which is pretty funny considering he's writing this in you know 1949 or earlier and yet um somebody does those voices and and if they're like me and they have a bank account and they go and they start dialing and, and they're talking to themselves i can imagine how odd that would be so it, there is this idea of, you know, and Ray Bradbury is in a time, and I, I'm fairly certain from, you know, his lifestyle that he was on the phone a lot, that he talked to people on the phone. And thinking about the phone as a technology and thinking about the effect it has, you know, uh, right now I'm talking to you from across the continent and we're not looking at each other. I can see a picture of you and I've got a picture of you in my mind. But that's not the same as talking to you. So we've got artificial intelligence in a certain sense, at least in the sense that it, it's semi-intelligent. It knows where and how to deal with, with questions and throw back words. It also has that, that interconnectivity uh, that you would see on an uh, internet. Uh, telephones, in a certain sense, are on the internet. And indeed, that's how we first connected to them. So it is science fictional, but actually, at its core, I think the power of this story is much more Ray, uh, much more traditional Ray Bradbury, and that is it's Edgar Allan Poe, right? This is a torture story in in a way like um, the Pit and the Pendulum. There's a man who has, because of loneliness, decided to make recordings to make himself feel more connected and less lonely. Um, he's put on plays, he says. He's, uh, you know, marched robots into, you know, re made recordings of sounds and smells to make the town seem like it's alive. And he's also recorded uh, these tapes so that in uh, 40 years he will be able to hear it. And then later, 60 years, it'll come again and he, he'll be able to speak. And the perversity of this younger Barton might be a byproduct of the pain of the older Barton, but it might not be. It might be that he is sort of sacrificing his later age in the sense of being perversely torturing by enjoying the torture as a young man. And that is incredibly interesting. This is something Poe never did, right? He didn't 
do that integration of the idea of a of a this is in in essence a time travel story as well in that he can project his consciousness into the future. One of the things that you said um, is that the story ends when he, he dies, or you came close to it. But actually, this story continues a little bit after, right? Yes, when, it does. And, and I thought that was so brilliant. Um, so I'm going to just read that little ending, if you don't mind. Please. Uh, the old man felt his heart falter. He would never make the other towns. The war was lost. He slid, and that's very interesting, considering all the people left for the earth, and he doesn't actually know. Uh, the war was lost. He slid into a chair and made a low, sobbing, mournful noises from his loose mouth. Look at that sound. It's so interesting. He glared at the, at the five other silent phones as if, at a signal, they burst into silver chorus. A nest of ugly birds screaming. Automatic receivers popped up. The office whirl, uh, whirled. Barton, Barton, Barton! He throttled the phone in his hand. The voice, the youth, the time of long ago. He mashed and choked it and still and laughed at him. It still laughed at him. He throttled it. He beat it. He kicked at it. He hated it with the hands and mouth and blind raging eye. He furl, furled the hot wire like serpentine in his fingers, ripped it into red bits which fell about his stumbling feet. He destroyed three other phones. There was a sudden silence. And as if his body now discovered a thing which it had long kept secret, it seemed to decay upon his tired bones. The flesh of his eyelids fell away like flower petals. His mouth became a withered rose. The lobes of his ears melting wax. He pushed his chest with his hand and fell face down. He lay still. His breathing stopped. His heart stopped. After a long spell, the remaining two phones rang. Twice. Three times. A relay snapped somewhere. The two phone voices were connected, one to the other. Hello, Barton. Yes, Barton. Age 24. I'm 26. We're both young. What happened? I don't know. Listen. The silent room. The old man did not stir on the floor. The wind blew in the broken window. The air was cool. Congratulate me, Barton. This is my 26th birthday. Congratulations! Laughter drifted out the window into the dead city. Yeah? It begins with a phone call and Barton talking to himself. It ends with a phone call and Barton to, talking to himself. The torture will continue, Eric. It's just there's no one there to appreciate it, to feel it. What a powerful story. It is. It is. And yet, it is uh, nearly a forgotten story. Absolutely. I, I, I would like to, to say a couple of, of things about why that may be. Um, one has to do with Bradbury's perverse erudition, and the other has to do with the place of this story in science fiction history. Um, Bradbury is self-educated. He didn't have uh, any formal education past high school, but he lived in the library, as is well known, and in fact wrote um, Fahrenheit 451 by paying a dime an hour to use the library, uh, a typewriter in the library. Uh, the name of their character, or all of the characters, mm -hmm. is Barton. 
which means farmyard. And there is a line in here which says that after talking about having created this system of transcriptions and relays and artificial intelligence, although that term isn't used, Mm -hmm. he did not know that he would reap this harvest. Wow. Right. Now, his first name is a rather odd first name for someone who's decidedly American. (laughs) We know he's decidedly American because the name of the captain that he invents to come pick him up is Norman, not Norman, Leonard, meaning brave lion, Rockwell. And Norman Rockwell Mm -hmm. is an idol at this time in America, 1949. Um, The first name he picks for Barton is Emil. Mm -hmm. Emil turns out to mean rival. Wow. And it comes from a Latin root that also gives us emulate. Now, Bradbury knows all kinds of weird things. As I said, he's self-educated. I could show you this by looking at references in book after book. I am quite sure that what Bradbury had in mind here was showing us a person rivaling himself. Mm-hmm. A person, which, of course, we get from the phone conversations. But if you ask, why does this matter to us now? Um, it's a story about at any stage in your life. The rivalry between what you were. And hoped you would become what you are and what you still think you may and wish you could become. And this internal conflict, this is psychomachia. This is the the war of the soul writ as complexly and largely as any story that I know. Mm -hmm. It's really quite extraordinary. And I think it speaks to us, not because of its science fiction, as you say, that's just an excuse. Mm -hmm. Um, It speaks to us because many people stop and say, as the young Ray Douglas Bradbury might have in 1949 at the age of 26, where will I be? What will I do? Will I be all alone? Will I make a difference? Um, If I could only talk from my older age to my younger age, would I find that I had been mocking myself all along by thinking I would fit into the world? So that brings me to the other part of this, having gotten past the erudition a little bit or having talked about it. This story was written and probably written and quite soon thereafter published in 1949. It is set on Mars and it shares many motifs with other of the stories that are collected in the Martian Chronicles, which is one of the most successful books of all time Mm -hmm. in the science fiction. That book was published in 1950. The first story to be published that's included in the Martian Chronicles is Million Year Picnic, which is the chapter of the book that is printed at the very end. Million Year Picnic, and I don't want to take the time to talk about all of Martian Chronicles now, but my argument has been all along that it's really a composite novel Mm -hmm. that begins with the Rocket Age and ends with Mars having become the great hope for humanity, that we get to try America again, but this time without the genocide and the war. And Million Year Picnic shows us that idyllic version of a new Earth, a new America, on Mars, toward which we can go. There were many stories that Bradbury published between 46 and 50 when he came out with the anthology, well, I could say composite novel. 
And there were some that he did not include, Mm -hmm. as well as new ones he created for it. So he could have put this in, but he didn't. And I think the reason he didn't is that this is so unlike Bradbury. This time the fairy tale is not one that succeeds. It's one that ends badly. Mars is not the good alternative to Earth. It's the place where you lose out in trying to talk to yourself. Mm-hmm. This idea of of Mars not fitting in the typical Bradbury notion of Mars, I think, is captured in the title. In 1939, Isaac Asimov published a short story called I, Robot. Mm-hmm. In 1950, the same year in which Bradbury published The Martian Chronicles, Asimov collected a number of his short stories about motivated by the three laws of robotics, and they too became a composite novel known as I, Robot. Mm -hmm. But the short story, as I say, was quite famous and came out in 39. So in 49, when Ray Bradbury writes a story called I, Mars, where you have all these robotic voices, not whole robots the way Asimov would have, but just voices, because as you've said, Jesse, Bradbury is so concerned with sound. Bradbury is trying to do a take on Asimov. Mm -hmm. And of course, as Bradbury himself later said, I'm not really a science fiction writer. I'm a fantasy writer. Mm -hmm. He wasn't an Asimov. This wasn't his kind of story. It didn't fit in the Martian Chronicles, and he wisely left it out. But you can see those motifs are already there. There's a story in the Martian Chronicles of someone going from phone to phone in the town. Mm-hmm. There's a story where we have the, called the Watchers, where, are, where robots are waiting for the return. We have another story where people are waiting to be rescued from Earth. Mm-hmm. These motifs are all in the Martian Chronicles. But this story is attempting to be an Asimov story. And in Bradbury's world, unlike Asimov's, in Bradbury's world, the technology can't lead to a superior outcome for humanity. So he winds up with an anti-Mars, that is an anti-Bradbury Mars story. It has all of his power, all of his writing skills, but used differently. And so he wisely leaves it out of the novel And I think since it doesn't fit, that's why Bradbury fans haven't really picked up on it before. Mm -hmm. But if you look at it, it fits gloriously as Bradbury seen in a radically different light. Mm -hmm. I I hadn't thought of it before, but you're you're focusing on Barton's first name. It only comes up, I think, the one time. Um, reminded me of something I knew about Bradbury and his friends. Um, he has a friend named Emile Pataja. I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but that's how I'm pronouncing it, Pataja. Um, and there's this story I'd like to read. This is on Wikipedia's entry for uh, Emile Pataja. In an autobiographical account, Pataja stated, Perhaps when all is washed down over the dam, my major claim to fame will rest in the fact that I, uh, it was I who got hands down to Los Angeles, and I who dragged him reluctant, reluctantly to meetings of the Los Angeles Science Fiction Society. This is, uh, he moved to Los Angeles in 37, uh, where we met Ray Bradbury. It was at the Clifton's Cafeteria on Broadway. We couldn't afford to eat there, usually, but we took advantage of the free lime sherbet. 
In that faded black room where so many of the SF elite had sat around the long table chewing the fat fanwise, hands first met Forey Ackerman, Henry Kuttner, et al. Um, so uh, his uh, sometime rival, sometime collaborator, um, and definite friend, Emil Pataja, um, <laughs> is shouted out in the name of this character. And Hans Bach, who who introduced uh, these guys, you know, is in part of these guys' circle, does the art for this story. Um, it is very personal to him. It's it's not... it's. I don't think it was left out because it's... Uh, he was kind of thinking it's not as good as the other Martian Chronicle stories because I think it's as good, and, and those are some amazing stories. I think you're right. It's about... The focus is different. It's it's that the way he puts it together, it's a tapestry of images. Here, this is an incident, but actually, it stands incredibly well on its own, and it is collected. It's in a, a less successful novel or less less successful book uh, called "I Sing the Body Electric." And when I say less successful, I mean less successful than the Martian Chronicles, as you say, one of the, you know, biggest and best sellers of all science fiction. Um, I think the body electric is incredibly successful too, but just in comparison. So it is very interesting, very personal story and incredibly good to read. Like just a really good read when you're reading through it, hearing that poetic language coming out, hearing the, Hearing that conversation happening, and then think uh, me, I'm thinking, oh, gosh, I can, um, I can kind of, if I was in this situation, I might do this. This makes sense, and then don't do that. That's horrible. And it I, continues. Yeah, I, I, I'm, I agree, Jesse. Um, one can't help but note that. Between 1946 and the Million Year Picnic and Martian Chronicles, there were a bunch of these Mars stories written, including including I, Mars. This story, I, Mars, doesn't come out in a larger volume until, as you say, I sing the body electric 20 years after its composition. Mm -hmm. I think that Bradbury knew all along what you did. This is a really good story. It just doesn't fit with his other work. And the reason it doesn't fit is not that the writing style is different. It's not that the techniques are different. It's not that he's suddenly become a science fiction writer instead of a fantasist. It's that he has lost his optimism. But 20 years later, I can imagine him reading the story again and thinking, ah, yes, I'll pick up the phone and put this piece of words, this language into another dialogue, and he adds it into a new book. It's even for works that are not optimistic, when they're this well-written, there's always more to say. Thanks very much for listening. And remember, you can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep. If you enjoyed this podcast, consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash SFF audio.